Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs, and today we're going to talk to James Diaz. And, and, and we get to do it in person because James is also in Madison. So James is the co-founder and CEO of Wellbe. And Wellbe is a health IT company that makes it easy for providers to engage patients during their treatment. And so this includes uh, guided patient journeys, better coordinated care, and uh, real-time insights. So what's interesting is there are lots of health IT companies out there now. But when James started Wellbe back in 2008, there were not nearly as many. So I'm curious to learn about more about Welby, how he started it, the reaction from providers when he first started it, and uh, where James wants to take Welby now. So James, thanks for uh, joining us today. Oh, terrific to be here. Before we get into what you're doing now, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Oh, my background? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, pertinent to the subject at hand, I think uh, I'm a consummate inventor <laughs> and a creative type. I come from that orientation. I've always had that orientation ever since I can remember, uh, since I've been, since I started keeping track. <laughs> really? What was one of the first things? Do you remember that? Or uh, something you, know, you like to do? Or, uh, 10 years old, 12 yeah. years old, going into high school, more of an inventor, creating things, making things, uh, writing songs, uh, making cool. movies. Yeah. There was all, you know, you, you had a pattern of creative uh, enterprise very young. And uh, I think I've stuck to my guns about huh. that ever since. Where, where do, you, do you think I came from just innately or do you think it came from your parents or somebody or just you just like yeah you know, I, I think I would, I would attribute some of it to my father who was very much a, a sort of a, a, a problem solver make your own stuff kind of guy okay. you know I don't remember us I, I remember my dad you know making furniture and making uh, all kinds of contraptions around the house to you know household aids and things like that just solving things I think I picked up huh. a lot of that from him is like if you know just reach out and make something uh, to solve something right then and there on the fly, and that's kind of become my essential DNA, and I've taken it to many, many levels from that point wow, on. Cool. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, after uh, after high school and college, what what, what did you do? What was some? Well, high high, high school uh, was very science oriented. Okay. I had a proclivity for you know a lot of um, science and physics and chemistry and biology, and I I, I firmly thought I was on my way to uh, to an engineering or science okay. field. So I went to college, and my first year in college, which I received a full scholarship for, was uh, to be a biomedical engineer. Huh. And this is a very this is an interesting story that'll come all the way back around. Uh, and, and, and went to school, and uh, the first year of college, which was at one of the earliest universities in Bahrain where I, where I, where I grew up and went to high school, uh, I, I discovered the curriculum was absolutely devoid of anything creative. It was a highly, highly regimented, okay. science-oriented curriculum, um, and it, it really um, dampened my enthusiasm for the entire field. And mm -hmm. I said, well, heck with this, I'm not going to do this. You know, this, this is not really what I thought it, uh, it was about, was, which was an unfortunate decision, I think, at the time. But uh, I, I didn't just, I, I wanted to build things. I wanted yeah. to make things. And they, they were convinced that they only got to make things when you, you know, completed a degree All or something. Like, it's yeah. like, what yeah. the heck? Yeah. Yeah. Right? I wanted to be hands-on <laughs> and creating. And so I... Uh, I'd also had a parallel passion in filmmaking as a, as a teenager. I had my own business uh, doing wedding videos and birthday videos. <laughs> cool. And this was in the very early days of uh, video technology. 
and I'd been something of an entrepreneur there. And I said, oh, well, there's, there's something I can fall back on. And so I convinced my parents to, uh, to, 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 to uh, put down the money for an education in the United States to go pursue filmmaking. And so I came to the U.S. and I, I spent uh, four years studying filmmaking and the arts and the things like uh, you know things of, of that nature communications video production and all those kind of things i really really enjoyed that and what, i was really in my what zone school was it at? well i i went to northern michigan university part of the bargain i made with my parents was that i would go to a school where they knew somebody and that happened to be my huh. parish priest and he came from that parish it's a it's a very That's odd set funny. of circumstances <laughs> i it was a trade off i was willing to make i was like oh yeah i'll get yeah, to go yeah, to the yeah. states and so i went off and there i was so uh, they today have, still to this day have a pretty good uh, filmmaking program tucked away there in up in Marquette, Michigan, uh, run by the same guy who taught me, wow. um, and it, w- it was great. It, it was reasonably well equipped. He had uh, you know, all, all of the makings of a good film program because he emulated things that he had uh, done, at, you know, in one of the biggest schools. So it was f- fantastic. And so I thought I was on track to go to to filmmaking. Yeah. You know, and so. I completed that and I went to graduate school, uh, stayed, stayed in touch with the filmmaking uh, industry. I did a lot of industrial videos and all kinds of things in that, in that arena. Um, and then I think for visa reasons and things like that, I started becoming a little bit more cautious about my choices. Okay. Um, what year is that about? Right. Now this is this is like the eighty-nine ish okay. time frame. Okay. I got a little more cautious about my my choices. I thought, oh, how who, how many people are going to hire a you know me as a filmmaker, so I better get a backup. You know, I did okay. one. Yeah. I did one of those yeah. classic things. <laughs> <Yeah. backup. laughs> And then it all, just, that. It, yeah. it all it all sort of rolled over from there. So I ended up. Uh, I was in, I was a member of the faculty at uh, Hanover College for a few years, five years actually. Also teaching all these things, and then the bug got back to me and said, "No, you got to get back into this creative world that you like to be in." And so I jumped ship from there and um, got together with a group of guys, and we started a new company uh, in Pittsburgh called the Sextant Group, which is still around and doing really really well. Uh, and that was a kind of a consulting company that was putting technology solutions together in the early in the early days, 80s, 90s, um, you know, doing this kind of work. And then I sort of shunted off onto the track that I find myself on today. You know, basically building technology solutions for um, companies, and you know, started in PCs and networking, and then the web came along, and then software, the opportunity to do things in software came along, and I just stayed on that track. Hmm, interesting. And did you have uh, any project back then that you are particularly of interest or you're fond of or uh, during all well, the PC or internet? Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, I did a, a lot. Of, I, I was fortunate to be involved in a lot of uh, very exciting projects. I, you know, I worked on one with uh, a, an enormous team at IBM building the first digital library at uh, IUPUI, Indiana University wow. and Purdue University in Indianapolis. Uh, I worked on one of the first, uh, what they call it, digital surgical theaters at the at the Medical College of Ohio, where they were convinced that they could um, bring in video and computing technology to teach live surgical procedures around the huh. world, and we created that. And it was a very wow. interdisciplinary team made up of architects and technologists and surgeons. And, you know, you, you're going to start to see this thread coming yeah. coming through here. Um, and, and we designed that pr- project, um, you know, performing arts buildings. It was a lot of different, very interesting projects. Were always had uh, provided me with an opportunity to be part of a creative team that was applying technology in new ways. And do you think uh, your 
uh, I mean, well, maybe we can get into this, but almost a better storyteller with your, your movie production background. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you know, there's, which, two, yeah. I mean, there's yeah. two things I, I credit for. I, I, uh, I, I think the, the days I spent in the classroom were, yeah. were very valuable okay. to me. Okay. Uh, I, 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 uh, I, I learned some skills on, on, on teaching skills and, and discussion skills and how to take a course forward. And then, of course, yeah, I think the filmmaking was a, was a, was a, was a discipline that I would sort of picked up on my yeah. own and then studied. Yeah. And so the whole idea of a narrative being used to structure uh, an outcome was, was, uh, has always remained with me, even as a software designer, if you talk to my team here yeah. today. Although I, I never make it explicit in the work that I do, it's all, it's, it, 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 uh, it um, feels a lot of the vision that we have mm. for even the product here. Because the product here is con conceived of as a patient journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why I was right. Yeah. Exactly. So it has yeah. a has a structure to it. We are taking people through different stages of the structure, and we tend to think that way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing is, we don't really think about uh, in stories when we grow up as much. I mean, you yeah. did, but yeah. like when you get older, like that's how people learn. That's how people yeah. like get motivated through stories, right? Yeah. But yeah. We, we're not very good. Most of us are not very good at storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, if you, and, and and it's funny though, you know, you 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 have such a dedication to to stories, and I'm still a very very big movie buff. I've been for years and years. Uh, it, it it it's been hard for me. It's sort of like the musician that writes a um, writes a song, and then you go, well, explain how you wrote that song. It's hard to sort of all break it down and sort of make it into a methodology. It's still difficult to do that. You know, it's sort of part of the gift, I guess, you yeah. get. And then it's very hard to translate that into a, a design methodology yeah. or something yeah. like that. But although it's been fun. I mean, I think the team has picked up a lot of those kinds of ways of working. I'm very fortunate to have a CTO who, who is in, uh, totally synchronized in, in the, in, uh, with me, and I, I, part of what I would attribute to his ability to do that is he's a PhD in English literature, so he also has an affinity <laughs> to awesome. the narrative. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you got two yeah. guys uh, sort of sitting here contemplating yeah. software designed for consumers in healthcare and, and all have um, sort of a framework between them that has to do with a conversational model, a narrative style, and things like yeah. that. So it's kind of interesting. That is interesting. PhD in English, great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. So eventually you came to Madison and you work at Sonic Foundry. Like, when when was that, and how did you get connected to Sonic Foundry? Um, Sonic started doing work with a company uh, I was at in 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 Pittsburgh called MediaSite, which was a spinoff uh, from Carnegie Mellon University that uh, had essentially invented the first video search engine. Mm -hmm. So at the same time that Lycos had been created, yeah. remember way back oh, when? Yeah, yeah Lycos yeah. was yeah, created. Lycos. Um, <laughs> a group of people in, in, in that same gene pool split off and said, hey, we, could, uh, we can create some things to allow people to search video. But, you know, in the... Um, the, the, the 90s, early, early 90s, uh, oh, sorry, mid-90s, uh, going into the 2000s, there wasn't a lot of digital content out there. I mean, if you, if you went on the early web, there wasn't a whole lot of video. So there wasn't much to search. So this was a classic case of a company that had a, a product ahead of its time, uh, the search engine. But, but Sonic was, was very much in the video creation business and so had an yeah. affinity to that company. And uh, I started talking about partnerships and all kinds of things uh, that, that we could be doing together. So I had made some treks to Madison a couple of times uh, on, on, on that front. Uh, and then um, they acquired us, um, mm -hmm. you know, to bring it in part of the, uh, part of their whole portfolio. And I came to Madison as part of the acquisition. There was a skunk works that uh, a group of us were working on behind the scenes to solve the lack of digital video problem. 
uh, we came up with a black box that actually could make a lot of video. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I was uh, a part of that group, and when I joined Sonic Foundry and came in as part of the acquisition, um, over a series of different events, the CEO there, uh, Remus, you know, said, hey, you know, you need to help me take that product and grow that product, and it was called MediaSite, and that's what I was primarily charged with. Interesting. Okay, so were you a, like a product owner there, more in sales, or a little both, or yeah, it's yeah. A, you know when you're when you're when you're taking an early product to market yeah. and you're and you're sort of moving it from what I would call the napkin stage to the, to commercializing it, you wear a lot of different yeah. hats. Uh, you 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 have to be entrepreneurial in your orientation, but you've also got to be able to be multidisciplinary. You got to be able to talk to technical people and salespeople and all all kinds of things and sort of pull a young a young team together to say how do we how do we solve all these things including the business model including revenue pricing branding all those things and so we had a, a little group that that did that and uh, and worked it through and I, I sort of was the the, the leader of that band <laughs> to take that process <laughs> nice. through and that's you know that that really that's um, good experience it's yeah. a very good yeah. experience and it's also one that you can get hooked on if you've got the particular affinity that that someone like me does right which is to take inventions turn them into commercial products uh, that's what you want to do and so that's what i've been doing yeah. you know uh, and i've you know it's one of several startups that have that i've worked through that have all been take it from napkin move it to the commercial yeah. stage and so when it came uh, when i had the chance to do it with for, for uh, myself here at, at welby I, I did it again okay you know. and before you in the welby is there anything in your past that you uh, wish you would have done different any uh, any lessons learned i know you mentioned the biomedical degree that maybe you should at least finish that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Was, right. Was there anything else that you look back like, huh, should have done this differently or should have, yeah. Or, I don't know, you know, I, I mean, it's all, it, it, you look back and you, you try to sort out the, the choices you made. Um, um, I, I had an orientation towards med school. I decided that med school by itself wouldn't be the right thing for me, that I needed to be in a creative field, and therefore biomed was the, was the right idea, because I thought, ah, I could, I could make things that help people get better, yeah, yeah. rather than just sort of act upon them surgically or medically. And so that was, that was, a, that was a choice, and I think that, that sort of choice making has directed a lot of other choices uh, over time. Um, but I've always had an, a, an affinity towards um, health-oriented okay. or, or medical-oriented yeah, yeah. things. It, it's, a, it's been an ongoing fascination uh, about a field, and there's all, obviously in the, in the healthcare field there's an enormous amount of uh, innovation that takes place you know, in, on the, bio, on the bio, uh, biomedical side, gene, gene side, and I've kept track of all of that stuff. But I never really thought I would have the opportunity to, to, to be a contributor in that area. Yeah. It's because software gave me an opportunity to do that and I was like oh, I'll go in and do this I, I had accrued about five years six years uh, but by the time I started this company there was about six or seven years worth of software experience specifically working with software teams and I said well that, that's an entry so yeah. let me take that I don't think I would have come into the field as a biomedical engineer no. I hadn't gotten the, the training and stuff like that to do it yeah, you never know where life will take you I yeah, guess. It, exactly <laughs> it's been a fun ride yeah, so makes far it, yeah. makes it interesting uh, all right, so tell us what Wellby and, uh, uh, you know, what do you guys do broadly and then kind of number of employees, money raised, just kind of some stats. I can remind you some of this stuff, too. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's uh, I mean, we're, we're a 30-person strong company right now, as you mentioned, um, in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, which is uh, our home base. We've got a couple of people who work remotely, um, um, you know, who are primarily in sales. 
they're, they're, that, that are outside of the shop, but everybody else is here. Um, we've had a couple of rounds of fundraising to sort of take us through different growth spurts. We've got about 50 customers around the, wow. around the country right now that are all actively using our capabilities and, and, uh, and de de deriving value from it. And so, you know, we've, we've you know, in, in the sort of business stages, we've established the product market fit. Yeah. Um, you know, now the question for us is, uh, what do we need to do to scale? That's yeah. the next thing on our on our radar and our horizon is how do we take what we've established and start scaling it up? Okay. Yeah, it would be interesting to come back to that. First, can you tell us about the product a little bit and what it does and how it helps providers, patients, and? Yeah, the, pro the product, I mean, it, in its essence is really a, an opportunity for patients and providers to use our tools to partner on their health challenges. That was the premise of the company. Okay. You know, the, the, the what if we had was, uh, you know, if we gave people the right tools, could we make them more effective at managing their way through their health challenges? And so we constructed a platform that allows a patient and their family to work effectively with their uh, doctors, nurses, uh, and other members of the care team through a health challenge. And the first set of challenges we chose were surgical challenges. So when patients are going through surgery, um, like a hip replacement or a knee replacement, there's a number of things that they need to do to prepare for that surgery, a number of things they need to be mindful of and do when they're recovering for the surgery so they have the best possible outcome. And so the, the platform is essentially optimized for that journey, taking the patient and family and the providers, putting them together in a partnership and then sort of taking them through the process uh, very systematically and very uh, as effectively as possible through that process. Um, and getting them to the other side. So let's say I'm going to get a, a knee replacement at one of your uh, client site uh, clients. Uh, would the client? How does it work? Like, does, does the client say, "Hey, you know, download this app," or are you integrated with your client's app? And then, like, does it kind of walk me through, like, this is how you prepare for the knee the knee replacement, and this is what we can expect afterwards, and then. Yeah. yeah, like, the, yeah, kind of, can you, do, I'm curious yeah. about the journey. Yeah, the, 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 so the journey is ideally construed um, and presented to you as, um, as something that's prescribed for your benefit, right? So yeah. your surgeon would say, Dave, you're going to get the surgery, we're going to, you know, your surgery's coming up in four weeks, here are all the, I, I want you to follow your care plan, yeah. and your care plan is now available on your smartphone, so just follow the steps, yeah, nice. and, and that's what you would do. You would just okay. sign on, and then your, each day or each week, certain number of steps would be provided to you, whether that's things you needed to learn, or things you needed to measure about yourself, or decisions you needed to make, or things you needed to report back to the team. Uh, any one of those types of different actions would be presented to you at at, at, at the uh, precise moment in time on the journey, mm -hmm. uh, you would get them done in order for the team to ensure that you could get to that surgery as prepared, and in some cases, if you've got complications, they call it optimization, as prepared and optimized for that surgery, so you had a, a lowered the risk and improved your, your, your chances of actually having a very highly effective outcome. Okay. And then we do the same thing on the other side of the surgery, yeah. so you go through a period of recovery, and we sort of keep an eye on you and give you a number of things that you you need to keep and uh, you know monitor and report back on. Interesting. I can see it being quite helpful. I remember I was almost going to get another shoulder surgery a little while ago, and yeah. we went in, and the surgeon's like, "You got to do this and this," and yeah. it's 
Yeah. We were a kid on the way, and we're like, holy cow, yeah, yeah, it was yeah, overwhelming. Yeah. It, it we is ended overwhelming. up not doing it, and it yeah. part, but it was just like, wow, yeah. there's so much here. It, there know? is a lot there. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and many times it's all presented to people at times when they're really not in a position to digest all of it and sort of understand all of it. Um, and so what we do, we do is we, we take all that big, long list of to-dos, and we break it up and give it to you at specific times when they matter most during the journey. Like, yeah. why? talk about the fasting instructions three weeks ahead <laughs> exactly. of time like, why don't we give it to you the yeah. night before you yeah, actually yeah. have to fast that's right? good yeah. and can you uh how can you can you customize the journey a little bit so let's say I, you know i'm i'm diabetic i don't know if that's an issue or yeah. not with me yeah. but can you have like a can you customize it per, a- absolutely. per person? Okay. Absolutely. The, the, the journeys are all what we call tailored okay. uh, based on any number of variables that your clinical team believes is appropriate. So uh, you're going in for a, a, you know a anterior hip or a posterior hip replacement. That defines the primary things that you need to do. Okay. But then if you've got some comorbidities like uh, diabetes or you have some sleep issues or other issues, uh, the, the, that journey, that what we call a care path, the plan for you is essentially tailored to accommodate okay. and account for those okay. comorbidities. Yeah, absolutely. And does the patient download the Wellbe app, or are you, do you integrate like through SDK or something with uh, the provider's app? Or oh, that's been an interesting challenge. Uh, the, the providers don't necessarily have the infrastructure in place <laughs> yeah. today to 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 um, support our app coming into them. I mean, you would think that the EHRs might be that. And that'd be that opportunity, the electronic medical record or health record. It's not the case. They, they aren't as open systems as you would you would want them okay. to be. So we, we designed the system largely uh, to reflect the times. You know that. Uh, to, to be a mostly standalone system that could work in, as a complement to the EHR. Okay. So we don't rely on the EHR to run us, um, um, but we do share a, a number of different things like data and stuff like that back uh, with the with the EHR. So it's a, it's the app is um, available to the to the patient consumer uh, on any device that they choose. So you could okay. open it up on your smartphone, a tablet, or or, or a web-based tool. It doesn't it doesn't matter. We've given you an app-like experience running in the browser it's, you know, that's, yeah. the, that's the approach oh, that's nice. we took yeah oh, that's good all right yeah. good um and so do you have any uh any interesting case studies about i mean it could be patients are happier they recover faster or do you you know how do you uh yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a lot of this is very qualitative, but just curious. Well, you, you know, know, we keep, a co- as you might imagine, we, we, you know, we keep a very close eye on, uh, on, on how uh, patients who use the WellBe system uh, respond to it. And by and large, people have been, um, you know, very grateful to have all of this information and we call it guidance provided to them, you know, and, and in such a convenient fashion. I mean, it, all, it, it gives all of us great joy to, to read the customer Oh, really? testimonials yeah. oh, yeah. that come through uh, that have, have allowed people to deal with you know, complex situations or the big task list that you talked about and make sense of it with their families and stuff. So I, I think all in all, um, you know, uh, consumers have taken to this amazingly well. We, we couldn't expect uh, more, right? you know. Um, so the, the consumer side has been great. It's been a more more challenging to work with the providers okay. because they, they, they are working in constrained environments and it's not like they can just sort
sort of, you know, um, redesign the way they operate in hospitals to be able to bring these sort of tools in. So it's been a it's been more incremental, I think, inside of uh, of most institutions as we've tried to work our way into the workflows and patterns of of of, of work in in those hospitals. Um, then on the consumer side, so consumers have adopted. Fabulously, the the providers are lagging, uh, and you know, and, and they're on a they're on a spectrum too. There there are people that are very progressive and have made great strides to accommodate these kinds of tools into their m models of design, uh, models of uh, care delivery. And then there are others who've sort of said, "I love this stuff, but are really struggling to actually make all the internal changes to get full benefit from it." Okay. Yeah. And how many consumers? Start with the app and then completely finish it. Do you, if you had a, if you had a guess, or is it, if it's a range, or because um, I mean, engagement's always a big issue, right? So yeah. how do you keep yeah. them engaged and interested? And yeah. So we, um, the people who start with the app, almost always have a hundred percent or close to hundred really? percent engagement going into surgery. Well, that's good. Okay, it, right. it's, it's very very strong. Oh. Um, what we're still studying and trying to understand is. What happens after surgery? And the, and the best explanation we have is different people have different definitions of when they believe the, the medical event or the episode is actually done, right? Okay. And so people tend to drop out of the programs at different points in time. So, you know, you, you might wake up one morning and go, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm <laughs> yeah, good, yeah, yeah. you know? Uh, and that might be uh, three weeks after the surgery okay. because you've had a good uh, recovery rate. You've got a good mental outlook. You're, you're, and, and whatever you defined as recovery, is, you have yeah. achieved it. On the other hand, there are people that might take seven weeks or eight weeks or nine weeks. So that's been an interesting uh discussion in, in here and with our clients about what what is the end of the episode now yeah. from a billing point of view they have very specific definitions and you know medicare has definitions etc but the patient's definition tends to be highly variable based on a number of different uh, perceived facts about their recovery and things you know perceived um, attitudes and things that about their recovery yeah okay yeah uh, and how long is a typical journey after the surgery? How many weeks? Like, I, it uh, probably depends upon the surgery. It depends but, on the kind know, of surgery. Yeah. In a hip and knee surgery, you know, it's usually uh, usually somewhere about a, um, two to two weeks to four weeks to get patients ready and optimized for the surgery, depending on what compl complications or anything that might be there. It might be even longer than that. Uh, and then after the surgery, um, you usually give them at least uh, four to six weeks, at least that. But okay. Medicare actually has made some of those things up to nine. 90 days now, so, okay. so it, it depends. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And and I'm curious, kind of, I mean, you've been in health IT for a while, I mean, compared to a lot of the companies, because, like I said, yeah. you're pretty early on, which is interesting. You know, how, how, what was it like when you first went, started at in 2008 and going out to providers were like, we have no idea what you're talking about, or were they receptive? And then, uh, you know, has it been easier as kind of health IT is picked, picked up, or, yeah, what's it? Or, yeah, it's actually a good question. I, I you know, I, um, I think in, in the beginning there were some people that were obviously making the connection about um, what they were seeing in other sectors of the economy and going, why can't we do this yeah. here? Yeah. Uh, so there was, a, there was at least a curiosity in place. Um, but they didn't quite, you know, I, I don't know if everybody necessarily understood the, the ramifications of digital healthcare and all those kinds yeah, of things yeah. back then. It wasn't clear to people how it would work. Um, so we, we went, you know, we, we, talk, we talked to lots and lots of people and only a few people 
uh, well, a lot of people got it. Most people didn't believe they were in a position to do anything about it. They were not ready. It was a readiness question. I okay. mean, conceptually, they were wrapping their head around it, but they were like, eh, my institution's not ready. Mm -hmm. I don't have a budget for this. I don't know who would own this. How would it go talk to my IT department? And then one of the things we did, because around uh, 2008, 2009, the federal government had already started taking over the agenda of the IT departments because they said, all of you guys now have to put in an electronic medical record mm -hmm. and all that stuff. We didn't want to get go stuck get stuck in that queue, so we designed the product so that it didn't depend on yeah, IT to yeah. put it in. So we were like, no, we don't want to go talk to yeah. IT. Yeah. <laughs> That's smart. Yeah, let's. Uh, let, can't we just yeah. talk to you and make this happen? It's easy enough. We'll we'll do all the deployment. In fact, all of the deployments we've had around the country have not been sold to IT. Have not been uh, IT has not been involved in, in the implementations oh, wow. and. IT is not even involved in supporting the product today. So we made it largely a standalone proposition so our business, yeah, yeah. clinical, and operational buyers could, could make those decisions by themselves, yeah. All right, we're, we're nearing kind of the end. I got a, a few more questions, but um, where, so where do you want to take well in the next five years? I mean, you mentioned that you know, scaling is kind of one of the biggest things you're thinking about. Is that, uh, and how, how are you going to do that um, effectively? Or is there anything else that you kind of want to Add to Wellbe in the next five years, or yeah, I, I think that the, the biggest learning uh, for me was the degree to which there is variability in healthcare. Um, you know, sometimes you walk into a room of five surgeons, and the five surgeons will do things in five different ways, <laughs> right? And so, at a national scale, you still have an enormous amount of variability. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you if there's no construct out there of sort of a standardized anything. I mean, maybe people take your pulse in a standardized way, yeah. but you know, but that's mostly that's from that point on, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, it's uh, it it is it, it, there's so much room for um, you know a personal a more personal approach by your providers, and they did they define and determine their protocols on a highly localized level, and so. What took us a, a while to, to wrap our heads around is that we had to develop this platform in a way that accounted for that variability. Um, so what we did was instead of trying to jam a one-size-fit-all across the country, we embraced the variability and, and, and reconstructed the platform as a Lego kit, and I'm using that you know, metaphorically. So, <laughs> so what we've done is we've taken a series of standardized capabilities and given each clinical team at each at, at each healthcare institution, and within an institution, you've got the cardio cardio the cardiovascular department doing things differently than the orthopedic department by necessity, obviously, and then doing things differently than you know nephrology and stuff. So what we said is that we'll come to the table with this these like this Lego kit, and it'll have various various functions that are highly uh, tuned into the way consumers want to interact with you, but you can decide how you want to put them together okay. based on the treatment plans and the surgical pathways and things that you want to do. And so we, you know, we're excited about that prospect and, and, and now we're starting to mobilize on, on that, that idea. And that's been, a, that's been an enormous um, you know, investment for us to sort of go, all right, that's how we got to go to market. We, you're not, we're not going to be sort of this monolithic app or a single type of thing. We're more this kit that you yeah. need to work with. Uh, but that comes, uh, that flexibility comes at cost. It, it takes more ingenuity of the team to sort of work it through. All the design scenarios have to account for the different ways in which the, the Lego blocks can be used. And so that's a that's a really fun and and uh, uh, far-reaching challenge. Yes, that the company's it's a challenging. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And you probably didn't expect that necessarily 
at the beginning, maybe you think uh, all the hip surgery would all be pretty uh, yeah. uh, similar across the <laughs> nation, yeah. but you know, it's not the, which is interesting, it seems like they, maybe some, they need some more protocols where it is. It, I, it, I, it, I, there is, but you know, the, the, I, I think the, um, it, it's sort of the, uh, the, the medical version of academic freedom, uh, you know, like doctors yeah. do need the license to do things, teams need the flexibility to do things. I think over time you're going to see a, a lot of that move okay. towards standardization because I think people are increasingly beginning to make the connection between that variability and the cost, right? Yeah. The more yeah. variability you have, the higher the costs are. So there are lots of people over the years, uh, chief medical officers, who have made that accounting and have said, look, we can't afford to have this kind of variability anymore. What, what is the purpose of the variability? Why do we need it? And so I think it, it, will, it, will, it will narrow the band, but I'm not sure it'll ever go away. Even if it if it were to go away in a particular uh, branch of medicine, a particular specialization, if we, well, we have to work in a hospital, we've got to work with many different departments. Yeah. So we still yeah. have to have yeah. the Lego kit that gives the cardiovascular team what they want versus the orthopedic team what they want versus the neurosciences team what they want, yeah. right? So the Lego, the Lego approach makes sense there. Definitely, okay. And uh, on, on a personal level, how, how do you deal with the, the fun and the stress of... Uh, Running well, be you know, it's, you know, you travel quite a bit. You have thirty yeah. people you're responsible for. Yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, they all help you, but you yeah. Know, so how do you, do you how do you get away? How do you de-stress? You know, how do you not go insane? Um, so, or maybe maybe enjoy the whole thing. Or <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I, I discovered yoga a few years oh, ago. Okay, <laughs> I was nice. telling my wife that. Excellent. Boy, I wish I would discovered that a long time ago. <laughs> uh, that that's helped a little bit, but it, it's it's. Um, you know, there's. Um, I I am one of those people who have not. I don't try to 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 create any sort of wall between work and leisure. Yeah. Right. I find that there are things that I do uh, that I can be very productive at that feel leisurely to me. So mm. it's an odd way to say this, yeah, but yeah, yeah. if you give me a couple of quiet hours yeah. to sit and work on a design, I would never call that work. I, yeah, would, I, I would call that like yeah. working on a pastime or right. something. And so there's many a Saturday or many times on a vacation or 30,000 feet up in the air when I'm flying or something where I can get completely engrossed in working on a problem and design and it's very relaxing in some yeah. ways. It's not a stress. It's not. So there's all kinds of ways yeah. that I've, I've learned to uh, accommodate that. I, and, and I think your point is that you, that you, that you brought up is a good one. I mean, um, you, you got to have the right kind of team. I'm very fortunate to have uh, a primary management team around me, three, three partners, uh, and then the team around them that uh, are very good at what they do. And, um, you know, we, we, we tend to know how to load balance uh, as we go along. Gotcha. Okay. And so, uh, you know, uh, what, what, the, what makes you happy? Like, does doing like two hours of concentrated design makes you happy or what, or what, uh, what, how do you find little bits of happiness in the day or, you know? You know, I, I was talking to a, a biomedical engineering group at UW a couple of years ago and I, I said there's a certain high that comes from seeing an idea being realized. It's mm -hmm. sort of, an, you know, a re release of some sort <laughs> and, it, and it's a, it's an addictive thing. Um, when you when you either write a story and somebody on the other side goes, I really like that story, yeah. or you you made a movie and people go, that was terrific, and I got hooked on that when I was a kid, and I'm telling you right now, it's still the driving force <laughs> for me. Uh, so those little 
tidbits that come back from our patients that said, I really like this thing, is uh, that's where the happiness really comes from. I mean, there's all the other things, you know, I, I, I have two kids, I have a very, you know, a loving family and all that. But, you know, in terms of the innate drivers from day to day, it's, it's all those kinds of things. It's, it's, the, it's the collaborative act that produces something that brings joy to other people. Mm. You know, even at home, we tend to operate that way. It's like, oh, we're going to work on this as a project, and then we get onto it, and it's like the end game is what gets, a, gets, nice. us, gets us some return, yeah. Interesting, okay. Uh, well, I think that's a, a, a pretty good way to end this uh, podcast. So uh, that was great. So James, really appreciate your time. And you're your, welcome. Hearing about your experience, and uh, I love what you're doing. So okay. uh, keep going at it, and uh, hopefully you guys get to keep, uh, keep growing and doing well. Thank you very much. Thank you for, uh, for, for this opportunity. Definitely. And uh, thanks, everyone, for, for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. As always, I greatly appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Bye.